Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 195 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today I am delighted to speak with Chris. Chris is Becca's mom, and Chris was really interesting to talk to because she had such an interesting take on grief, and I just really learned so much from her and really appreciate what she has to say, and I know that you will too. Before we get started, though, I do want to go into the next couple of special episodes we have coming up in the next few weeks. So the first one is our next live stream that I will be doing with Gwen and Jamie. And we've got kind of a fun thing, I think, going with that. In that episode, we'll be talking about unhealthy coping strategies versus healthy coping strategies. So I would like you to write in to me at marcyandandysmom.com. Tell me, what are some of those unhealthy coping strategies that you may have used or may still be using? We won't use any names, but I think it would be helpful for us to kind of know how common that is and to be able to be there for each other to help support each other as we try to break some of those bad habits that we've fallen into. The second thing I want to talk about is the fact that episode number 200 is coming up just around the corner just five weeks away. And so we're looking to do something pretty special for that one too. So if you have an episode or a person that particularly spoke to you, why don't you email me? Let me know that as well, because I do want to just go over what it's been like these four years now of doing the podcast and talk about some of those memorable moments. And I would like to know what is special that has gone on for my listeners that has really helped them in their own grief journeys. But for right now, I want you to sit back and enjoy listening to Chris, Becca's mom. Thank you so much, Chris, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. I am really looking forward to talking to you. You have a really amazing story that I enjoyed reading. And then we've been chatting just a little bit before we even start recording. And I'm just excited. I really am. So thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. So I want you to start and go way back because you've got a really unique history on being a parent, really, and kind of how these kids came into your life and because you're adoptive parent and I've had some adoptive parents on before, but you've got kind of a unique story with a lot of adopted kids. Mm -hmm. We do. So why don't you start out by just telling us a little bit about that, about how that kind of started? Because it didn't start with adoption. Well, many years ago, we just decided we would build our family by adoption. Mm-hmm. And so we started out adopting brothers that were five and four. Okay. 
and many, many years ago, those, those were our first kids. In the meantime, we adopted more kids and more kids, some that came from Korea. Mm-hmm. And so our state or an organization in our state way many years ago brought children from Korea to have heart surgery. Otherwise, they would die in, in Korea because they didn't have the surgeries then. So we got a phone call because we had had we had adopted a Korean child and said, as it said, we've got these children. There were two of them and they wanted us to take one. The hospital had volunteered all their time. The doctors had volunteered all their time, but they didn't have a family who would be their host family when they were here having surgery. They did not bring the mothers, just the child. And so we asked them, you know, one of the things our question was, do the children die? And they said, yeah, sometimes they die. And I thought to myself, why would anybody want to do something like that? I was pretty sure my husband would say no, but anyway, he ended up saying yes. This is around yeah. Christmas time. And little Young Jung came about Valentine's Day, had her surgery, and it changed our life because we got to know the congenital heart defect world and we got to see a miracle happen. And so the next child we adopted was a child from India that had a heart defect. Mm-hmm. There, and then we kept adopting and some special needs kids and some with heart defects. And that's just kind of how it went. Yeah. You just kind of kept growing your family in this very special way, really kind of with kids that had heart problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I want you to talk a little bit about, it's so hard to know uh, about your daughter, Linda, because she was and wasn't your daughter kind of all at the same time. So we're going to spend some time talking about that and how that was just had to have been a confusing, hard kind of situation. We were, we got a phone call after we had adopted some heart kids and hosted other kids that came from Korea for heart surgery. We got a call from adoption agency because we knew heart kids. They wanted to place a, a little girl named Linda in our home for permanently. And so we said, sure. And they thought she would be fine. They thought it would be a couple of surgeries, but she would, she would be just fine. So she started doing, she was tiny. She was brand pretty much a newborn. And then she started not doing very well. Or she, well, first she did well. And so then they told us, well, we're going to give it to another family because you have a bunch of kids already and this family doesn't. So we're going to give her to another family. And we thought, wow, that's pretty awful. Because you said she was going to be our little girl and she already was our little girl in our heart and everything else. Right. Because how long had you had her when she when they said that? Oh, maybe two, three weeks. I mean, yeah. But you know, the kids, our kids become our kids. We can fall in love. Oh, yeah. I know. But it was just I mean, what an awful thing to like, give her to you and say, okay, she's yours. And like, oh, no, I know it's been two, three weeks. And you're really attached to her. And you have introduced her to all your other kids. Because how many other kids did you have at that time? Gosh, I don't know how many we had, maybe five or six. So you had, I mean, but they st- are starting to think about their new baby sister and very excited about their new baby sister. And then whammo, yep. she's kind of taken away from you. Like, oh no. Well, they had said they would. And then she <laughs> yeah. was not, she started not doing too well. She started right. not eating well, having problems being hospitalized a few times. And then they came back and said, well, you know, you can go ahead and have her basically. And right. so she, yeah, I know. 
became our little girl. And they, they thought they were going to be able to put surgery off for her to grow and get bigger and things. And they couldn't because she started failing. They operated on her when she was eight weeks old and she died 12 hours later. Yeah. So just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. I mean, like she was yours, then she wasn't yours, then she was yours. You're excited about having this little baby girl and then she's gone. She's gone. Yeah. And it took me three years to even talk about her without crying. I mean, she was yours. Yeah. Yeah. She was yours. Yeah. She was ours. Yeah. Well, now I don't want to minimize what that was with Linda because obviously that was very, very painful. But you went on, though, after a time. And now talk about Becca. So we got a a phone call from an adoption agency uh, saying they had a family, a birth family, trying to decide whether to relinquish her or not. And they needed a family who knew heart kids. Because she had heart defects. She had heart mm-hmm. defects also. Would we foster her? Now, we weren't licensed foster parents, but we, we take her for a few days while they made the decision. And so we said, well, first, I told my husband because we said we were done. But they said, oh, they also said, we have a family for her. So, you know, she's not going to be yours. And we said, okay. I said, why not? She goes, because Chris, you can't have them all. So we said, okay, because we had a large family at that point. So anyway, my husband said, yes, I thought he would say, no, you know, we've got enough. But anyway, he said, yes. And so a few days later, I went to their home with the social workers and there were other people there too. Becca was on a couch. Nobody was touching her. I was just quietly sitting in the background and there was conversation, which I don't remember. And then somebody picked her up and took her, put her in my car and we drove off. Because how old was she then? She was a month old. Yeah. I was going to say, she was probably a little bit older because she had pretty complex heart disease. She didn't go home right away. No, she did not. And they hadn't mm-hmm. had her home very long at all. No. They probably were realizing this is going to be a lot more work than we thought. It was a lot. It was mm-hmm. a lot. And this was an unplanned child also. So it wasn't, they had a, a teenager actually. And then they had Becca and she was not planned. So we took her home. The next day there was an adoption picnic and this family that had been chosen for her was going to be there. And we took Becca to the adoption picnic. And met the family, the, her birth family decided, we were told on Monday, decided to relinquish her. And the family who was going to adopt her uh, could, couldn't take her until Thursday for some reason. So that Wednesday before the Thursday, when we were going to give her to a, her family, um, I took her to the pediatric cardiologist. And there was a lot of conversation that didn't sound very positive about her condition because we'd been told one surgery, no problem, she'd be fine. And the do- finally, I said to the doctor, well, what are, what are you, give me some numbers. What are the statistics? And they said she has a 13% chance of survival to the age of five. And that she, there may be a surgery they could do at three that might help her. So, Because she had something called tetralogy of Fallot, but not a simple kind, no. very, very complex. Pulmonary atresia, mm-hmm. pulmonary hypertension because of a te- pulmonary atresia. She was very, very complex. Very sick. Mm-hmm. Very sick. And although she looked, Wonderful and beautiful, you know, and she was a little challenged to feed, but that, that was okay. So anyway, I called the adoption agency, obviously didn't know it. So after we got out of the doctor's appointment, I called them right away and they, nobody answered the phone. So I then called the family who knew we were going to the doctor's appointment. And I told them what the doctor had said. And the prospective mom said, we don't want a doomed child. Yeah. 
And so we did, <laughs> we wanted to yeah. And she yeah. was meant to be ours all along. Yeah. The agency just didn't know. Yeah. So yeah. we brought Becca home for good. Yeah. Yeah. Because then the adoption agency called you back and. Yep. It called us back. And, you know, I think they tried to convince the other family to try to take her. But you don't do that when a family, when a child is complex. They, they were just surprised. I don't know who they were talking to about this, about Becca. But anybody knew she was complex. I mean, the car- pediatric cardiologist knew. Why didn't they apparently hadn't talked to her? You know, it's so funny because I think back, I, I've talked about this once or twice in the podcast that I, when I was in my training, we had a baby that had, it was born and it had a hypoplastic left heart, which means that it just has one real pumping chamber, which is, which at the time had about a 50% survival rate at that point in time. And then the baby also had something called an emphalocele, which meant that there was an opening and the intestine were like outside of the body. So there was a sac kind of sort of holding it in, but it was like a big balloon with your intestines out. And actually this little baby's heart was also in that omphalocele, okay? And they, the family was told that, well, if you have an omphalocele, you have a 50% chance of survival. But no one told this family that if you have a hypoplastic left heart in your omphalocele, you don't have any chance of survival. No one had told them that. They heard 50%, 50%, and they think, okay, but in this case, 50% times 50% wasn't even 25%. It was zero. Like, and I'm looking at this and the heart stops. And now I'm trying to do heart chest compressions on an actual heart, just on my sterile gloves on the heart itself, because there is no chest. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like sometimes doctors have such a hard time telling someone bad news because, I, you know, when you t- told that story to me, when you asked that question, what are the numbers, the doctor responded with, do you really want to know? Because in general, we don't want to tell people because we don't want to take away their hope. But, you know, like this family, I felt so bad because there I am in the NICU and we're trying to do all of this stuff. And now there's a frantic call back to the to the, you know, where they had delivered the baby to try to at least get the dad there to see the baby for a couple minutes before she died. Instead of, this is not going to be compatible with life, hold your baby while they die. I mean, that mom could have held her baby. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But I just think back to that. I feel like that's probably what happened with that adoption agency. No one, no doctor wanted to give them the news of 13%. So they just kind of skirted around it. And like they did to you, they said all of these complexities has this and this and this and this and this, expecting that maybe you'll read between the lines, but they don't really want to say it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I do know there are some people who don't want to know. Yeah. Right. And there are parents that don't want to know. But in yeah. this type of case now, this is this is an adoptive situation. So these right. parents are taking something on. It's, you know, they should know all that information for sure. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So I, I don't know what the circumstances were, but, you know, I just think she was meant to be ours all along. Right. I think so, too. I think so, too. So, you know. So anyway, we, t- we brought her home for good. 
And we took her to the pediatrician that had been seeing her, which was up here. And she, he thought actually, this was maybe two or three days later. She thought, he thought she wouldn't live but a few days. This is a pediatrician. Yeah. And he even called me the day after I had taken her to this pediatrician, he called the next day to see if she was still alive, which I, so that's kind of amazing. And ultimately, oh, maybe a few months later, we did have hospice coming to our house yeah, um, because they didn't think she would live. So it was, you know, but we loved her. Yeah. Isn't that what it's all about? Right. You know, it is loving and losing and, but still loving, you know? Yeah. That's what it is. And and you had to have thought this is kind of Linda all over again at the time. Well, in a, in a way yeah. when they did that, but you know, I don't know that I thought Linda because each child's different. Mm-hmm. It's a different circumstance. You know, it's a whole situation. So I'm not sure that I thought that. I just remember thinking, you know, this can't happen, but you know, it was supposedly going to happen. And then, you know, I'd always take it to the cardiologist or the doctor and I never, she started crawling and doing all this other stuff, but the doctors never asked me what she was doing. It was kind of funny because they just assumed she was kind of a, couldn't do anything. And then it was that summer. So she was about eight, nine months old or something. I took her to the doctor's office, the pediatrician or the cardiologist, and I kind of put her on the floor. Now that, I don't know why I did that. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, he goes, she's, she started crawling. She goes, he, she, he says, she's crawling. I said, well, yeah, she's crawling. He goes, I didn't know she was crawling. So then, so that kind of looked, what their expectation was, was different than what she was doing. Yeah. So then there was different questions and things. And then ultimately there was, you know, they decided ultimately that maybe she was going to make it somehow the collateral vessels, which I know, you know, about that had grown and mm-hmm. those kind of things. When she was 13 months old, she, well, we graduated out of hospice, which mm-hmm. they, people do. And then they were going to, they did surgery on her when she was 13 months old and they couldn't get her off the heart lung machine. And uh, they had to put her on something called ECMO and ECMO is beyond life support. Mm -hmm. Really? I mean, ultimate life support. And at that time in our town, there was one ECMO machine between two pediatric hospitals not close to each other. And luckily she was in the hospital that had the ECMO machine that they could put her on. And they really had mostly used it for uh, premature babies at that point, not for for children after heart surgery. And the ECMO helped her heart and lungs rest and she survived. Because that works as the heart and the lungs, that ECMO machine. We've had some some stories that I've told on the podcast that they've been on, kids have been on ECMO machine. But yeah, it is, it can be wonderful to be able to give the time time to heal for person's heart and lungs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I know people, children, many children who've been saved by that now, which I'm sure the technology is a whole lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she went on, she went on and she blossomed and she grew and she, there was, she had no brain bleeds and things are a big issue with ECMO. Yeah. She, she was in four days, she used a hundred pints of blood and all this kind of stuff. She had hundred, it yeah. was big. And so they thought her, she would have brain damage and things. And she didn't, she pretty much was a normal child, whatever that means. I don't know yeah. if there's such a thing, but with the heart condition and all that kind of stuff. Well, then she needed, she ended up needing surgery again. So she, we ended up going to UCLA for surgery because there wasn't a doctor here to do it. 
and she had surgery, she did well, and then she came home. So she has a, a life story of surgeries, heart catheterizations, yeah, you know, all that kind of things being looking for, we learned about something called pulmonary hypertension, which is kind of a monster yeah. and high pressures in your pulmonary arteries. So we kind of went around the country looking for somebody who could treat it because at the time there weren't any experts much at all in children. And we ended up in New York, found somebody who could, which I'm sure also saved her life. And we also had to fight doctors to be able to get a second opinion and things like that. So that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. You just kept fighting for her. Well, we kept fighting for her because she, you know, doesn't, it's not what every child deserves. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. No matter what their circumstances, let's, let's fight for them. And so we actually went to New York and we saw some Broadway shows and she loved Broadway shows. She just loved them. Mm -hmm. So, because how old was she at the time? Well, she was about 10. Yeah. Because she far hit that in that 13%, she did. didn't she? Yeah. Well, you know, this, you know, those collateral vessels that grow and saved her life. And mm -hmm. then we had extra medicine and different things like that, that, that made a difference. And she was somebody who you would look at and you'd never know anything was wrong with her unless you saw her scar pretty much. Even the cardiologist sometime, I remember one time she had to go for a heart cath and they hadn't, you know, she hadn't had a heart cath for a few years. And all of somebody then looks back at her records. This is a pediatric cardiologist and went, whoa. I mean, it was like, oh, I'd forgotten how bad she was because she looked so good. They were, it was kind of like, oh, it's like four alarm fire here. But I mean, she did fine during that heart cath and stuff yeah. too and ancient things. So. Because she was a little miracle. She was a miracle. Yeah. For a, yeah, she was. Even that it was a miracle she was in our home because she wasn't supposed to be. Right. I know. It was just like little miracle yeah. after little miracle just happening over yeah. time for you. She was. So ultimately what ended up happening then with Becca. Ultimately, she needed a heart lung transplant. Okay. And we ended up for treatment ultimately at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, which is the stand the children's side of Stanford. Okay. And her pulmonary hypertension specialist was there and her arrhythmia specialist. So Stanford wouldn't transplant her. And so we looked across the country to find a place that would and she was turned down at at four top places in the country. And finally, she was accepted at UPMC, University of Pittsburgh, I don't know, one of those places. And there was a surgeon who would, who would accepted her. And we were all, that was all great, except heart lung transplants and pretty much anybody doesn't, do not have high survival rates really, but um, we were excited. But then maybe six months later, so, but they thought she was too good to be listed at that point. How old was she then? She was, oh, I'm going to say 16, maybe 17. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the surgeon who accepted her moved to University of Pittsburgh next to, um, I don't know, moved, moved over there. So we had to go through the whole transplant thing again for the, a different facility. Mm -hmm. And by that time, she was oh, 20, 21. So, and ultimately what happened was they said the risk was too high. Yeah. That she probably died during surgery. We would have to move there, which we realized no matter what, where we'd have to move, but it would take her out of her family, her friends, her life. And they decided, and it was interesting because the children's hospital, people from the children's hospital came over, pediatric cardiologists, because at that point there wasn't a lot of experience with adult children, yeah, congenital heart defect on the adult side. 
Mm-hmm. And this pediatric cardiologist is crying when she's telling us we just we can't we can't recommend they do it because we think she died potentially during surgery. She also had high antibodies, like oh, 99%. And that would have had Right, because of all of her blood transfusions. All, all, the, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So then our goal was to take her home and have her live the best life for the longest she, the longest life she could. And, yeah. and but she knew she was going to die. Yeah. 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 So that's hard. No, it's hard. Sure. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. It's hard, but you know, you have to, you have to live. I always lived with hope with Becca, you know, you yeah. and with love and way back when we had the first Korean child that came from Korea to have heart surgery and go back home. I was in an ICU room with at that point. There was a great big room and there were people all over the kids all over in one room. And there was a child from the United States who just had a tear duct surgery. And the child's brain swelled and heart stopped. And this child supposedly was not going to be able to do anything. And this was the child who was the same age as young Jung was, two years old. The family had been told that chances are she would be able to do anything. And then here was young Jung who potentially should have died, but didn't. And I sat in this room looking at these two children asking why, 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 why? And it drove me crazy. Yeah. At one point, I finally decided there's no why. It's just is. And so yeah. you deal with what is. And it's helped me so much, my whole because I don't ask why. Because there's no answer. There's no answer. And so we didn't ask why. We just answered is. We'd done everything. I know we wanted no regrets. We wanted to look across the country and see who we could find and what we could do. And so we had no regrets. Yeah. And never ask why, because there's no answer. Yeah. Well, and that's true. And that is such a hard question that can haunt you as a bereaved parent. But so much peace has come from me realizing there's no answer to that question. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it could drive me crazy. Why her? Why us? Why her future? Why, 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 why Linda? I don't know. No answer. It's just love, isn't that? All you can do is love. All you can do is love. Mm -hmm. So how long was she home then like that? So she was home for, well, on and off, in, in and out of the hospital. I mean, she was, she was a speaker for anti-bullying. She was a speaker for, an advocate for congenital heart defect. She did great for a long time. You know, yeah. we had in and out of the hospital and we'd go up to Sanford and, and she started having arrhythmias, had a pacemaker, defibrillator um, placed, you know, just kind of lived her life. She was pretty remarkable in the she was very remarkable. And the fact that she could be sad, but it didn't, she didn't like sadness, let sadness take over her. Because mm-hmm. so, she wanted to live. Yeah. She wanted to live. She didn't say, I want to live till I die, but she wanted to live because she was living. Yeah. You know, she was alive and life was so wonderful as far as she was concerned. And it really was in a lot of ways. So she wanted to live each day and not like, counting down the days till her death kind of thing but she 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 told me she would never give up yeah and you know that's so when time got closer and closer so when she was i'm when she was 25 years old or so she Mm -hmm. was spent more and more time in the hospital and we spent five months out of 11 months up at stanford lucille packard on the children's side because those are where the experts are and what she had 
So there, in June of 2018, she was having, she was throwing up all the time and it was having some arrhythmias, different issues. So we called the doctor on a Thursday and said, uh, hey, this is what's going on. You know, I think we need to come up. And they said, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And so they said, can you be here tomorrow afternoon? And we went, well, I guess so. So we, we hopped on a plane that morning, the next morning. We said goodbye to everybody. We'd be back in, by the end of the week. This was on a Friday. Mm-hmm. Becca never, three and a half months later, Becca died. Lucille Packard, she, she so wanted to go home, but, but she, we couldn't get her home because she yeah. just went downhill so fast. Yeah. So it was, she coded twice. I'd never seen her code before she hadn't, you know, she just, she, her heart was just tired. Yeah. It was just tired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny. You're talking about that. I, I think about that. When my mom ended up dying of heart failure. She had cancer, but her chemotherapy killed her heart. And I mm-hmm. still remember the doctor saying she'd be a perfect candidate for a heart transplant but she can't get a heart transplant because she has cancer. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, I, I know that watching someone you love, the heart just giving out. It just gives out. But when she was in the hospital, there was a, a, a young boy who was waiting for a heart transplant. He'd been waiting, I don't know how long. And he was so, he didn't want, they had a school, they had a public school in this hospital, which is amazing. For kids who were in the hospital, no matter where they lived in the country and came for treatment. He was, he didn't want to go to school and he didn't want, and Becca loved to go to the school, even though she was older, they didn't care. They, they had her come. So she would spend time with him, talking with him, understanding where he was coming from and being heard by somebody he knew, knew where he was coming. Mm -hmm. And so she, she did that for this little boy who finally ended up going to school and liking the school and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So she was always reaching out to other people. There was another little girl she met who had pulmonary hypertension also that that she colored with and did other mm-hmm. things like that. It was also adopted actually. You know, she she wanted to help other people. Pretty, pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny because that reminds me of my foster son Valeriano because he when he got his transplant, there was a little boy who was four. And they always went to Dallas together. They every day they were just Dallas's partners. And I remember the day Valeriana got transplanted. I Well, he was supposed to get transplanted in the night. So we found out about it in the morning and said, we're going to do, do the transplant overnight. And um, then suddenly they said, no, we're actually going to wait till tomorrow. Well, I didn't know at the time why they had to wait till tomorrow. So the next day, you know, Valeriana is in surgery. And I said to the transplant coordinator, I said, what will this little boy think when he gets there? And his friend Val is is not there for dialysis. And she said, she didn't say much of anything. She left and she came back 15 minutes later. Well, she said something to me like, oh, do you want me to tell them? And I said, yeah, you can tell, tell them that he got a transplant. So she left and she came back 15 minutes later and she said, yeah, I had to go talk to that family because the reason Valeriano couldn't get his transplant last night is because that little boy got his. Oh, wow. So they got their transplants on the within 12 hours of each other and got rooms right next to each other. And then, you know, after transplant, you have to now everyone's used to wearing masks, surgical masks, but you had to have surgical masks on. And there were only like the only people in the room without a surgical mask was Valeriano and his family. 
And if you left, you had to put everything on. So, But this little boy could come to our room and we could go to his room. Um, and yes. because that was, those were mm-hmm. safe, clean mm-hmm. places. And so it was, it was just very, very sweet. And he was such a great, you know, here, my son was all, you know, close to 18 years old, 17 years old, just helping this little four or five year old kid. It was pretty, it was pretty cool. Yeah. So I totally can get that. Yeah, that's pretty cool like you're mentoring kind of it is and you know and that's what she wanted to do with people people her own age people younger people wherever she became a camp counselor they have heart camps for heart kids and Mm -hmm. she always wanted to be a counselor and she was allowed to she had to wear oxygen because it was higher elevation but she did it and she just just loved it and that was one of her goals this was the end of june and she so wanted to go to camp to be a counselor in july the end of july and she she didn't make it and it broke her heart actually she we, she never got to come home she so wanted to come home and she just kept getting weaker and weaker but there were times that she was better she felt better and there was one time and it was maybe 2 3 weeks before she died and she had a really good day and she said to me you know mom i i have a little tiny bit of hope and i said you know becca i do too and it was so neat. I've got a picture of her. She's putting these socks on and she's smiling, sitting in her bed. And I thought she hadn't given it all up and neither had I, you know, I yeah. thought I had a little bit of hope, but she eventually coded again. She really wanted to live until her birthday, which was October 9th uh-huh. before, maybe a week before her birthday. And so she did, and all our family came up for her birthday she had a birthday party and a doc, the doctor came in and said to her, well, how do you, happy birthday, Becca, how do you feel? And she said, I'm ecstatic. And by oh. that time, her voice was very slow and she was very tired, but she was, she was happy in a, not in her normal way, but in a different way. But content, so, right? Oh, yes, yeah, she was content. I know she... She would have loved to keep living, although yeah. there was a time, maybe a couple of days later, she died on the 12th. And she had actually said to the doctor, this is kind of odd. The doctor walked in. This was kind of a, maybe a few days before her birthday. And she, and she said to him, well, you told me I was going to die on the 12th. And he goes, no, I never told you that. And she goes, yes, you did. You said that. He goes, no, Becca, I never tell anybody because I don't know. But anyway, she died a few minutes after 12 o'clock. Uh, on the 12th uh, yeah it's kind of weird yeah oh wow so she said i'm so tired i don't think i can live anymore yeah wow yeah yeah that's amazing that ended up being right the time when she died it was kind of amazing yeah Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. yeah so talk to us now about your grief journey and i mean so you had to then go home without her and fly home at we had to go home and we had a, a daughter, actually a, a daughter and a son, adults were both still there. One was in the room with us with Becca when she died and one had had driven up in his car and was going to go back to work, but he stayed. And so we, we kind of, we had to pack everything up because she'd been there for three months yeah. and we had, and we had to go and it was kind of awful, but you know, it was interesting because we knew families. We knew families who were there who'd lost their children and who would spend hours with their children after they died. And that we had that option. We had, they, we could do 
whatever we wanted pretty much. Right, right. But we, we felt like Becca had, Becca was light. And we felt like her light was gone. We couldn't yeah. see her anymore. So we, we wanted to go, you know, yeah. we just needed to go. So we packed up to leave and then figure out how we were going to get home and get all that organized and, and not let people know that she, she had died and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that I had done, because I knew Becca was going to die, there's something called, it's okay if you're not okay. There's a book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had actually, I love Brene Brown. And she had on her Facebook page or something, these are the books by my bedside. And I'd seen this on the Facebook page and that was one of them. And I looked it up, not knowing what it had anything to do with. This was four and a half years ago now. And I looked at it and I thought, this is a book on grief. That's kind of yeah. crazy. So I ordered by Amazon and got the book and started reading it. She has a web a Facebook page or yeah, Facebook page and stuff and a website. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going on that and, and she has a writing your grief program that you can do. And I signed up for it before Becca died and it started on the eighth. And so I started writing, which is, which is kind of weird. And I thought it was kind of weird, but I did it anyway, because I'm sure it's not designed for that necessarily, but at least I, I got started. And actually I'm glad, I wish I would have written a lot through all the years. I think it would have been such a good thing for me Mm -hmm. and for memories and for just, you know, validating things or, or not. But anyway, I started writing and I started writing every day. It's for every day for a month. There was a, you know, a, something, some kind of topic you could write on. And you didn't have, it was no, never graded. You never had to show anybody. You didn't have to share yeah. it. And so I think, I think that was a good thing. I had also started before, maybe three years before, maybe I'm not sure how long. But Becca was not doing well. And so I decided I would go see a grief counselor. And we there was somebody who was connected with Hospice of the Valley that had, they had a program that went to families who had chronically ill kids. And just kind of this person that came to the home uh, supported Becca and she supported me. And she did, she was like a social worker type person, art therapist, all this other kind of stuff. and. Becca didn't have to be on hospice to have her services. And she was amazing. And she suggested this art, this um, grief therapist or counselor. And so I had started to see her for a while. And then Becca started going to see her because, you know, there's a lot of grief in being chronically ill yeah, and not being able to do the things your friend can and stuff. So anyway, I had stopped seeing her maybe uh, a year, I don't know, a while, but she was, I got to be able to, I called her on the day back at that Friday in the daytime. And then I could see her on Monday. So I started grief therapy right again that Monday wow. with somebody I trusted and knew me and knew yeah. Becca. So that was, oh, yeah. that was significant. You know, it, right. It really was. Most people don't have that, uh, you know, but I, no. I, I was lucky in that sense that I did. Mm-hmm. So I went to, you know, just, I saw her, once a week, at least for, for a year. And then she moved to Japan because <laughs> her husband was transferred, but you know, that was great, but she was, she was good. She was wonderful. And I, I think you find your person and you, you talk to your person and you listen, you know, yeah. and they listen and they, yeah. And you know, you're heard. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Yeah, it was really good. But I also read a lot of books. I read a lot. It's okay. You're not okay. I read, there's one called, I wrote it down here. There's one called Bearing the Unbearable. Uh-huh. So good. I love Brene Brown. I, I read Bra Braving the Wilderness a couple of times because when you lose a child, you're in the wilderness. You are. Mm -hmm. It's not normal. You're lost in the wilderness. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't feel like you're going to see a way out ever. It, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. So, you know, but I, one thing I had known enough of is that I knew I could grieve the way I wanted. I mean, I think a lot of, I did not have people around me in any way who said, okay, you need to be done now. Even now I don't, I'm so lucky in that. And maybe, you know, I'm so lucky, but I have also have a lot of friends who are grieving, who've lost their children. I have a close friend who lost her son the year before our daughter died. And so we hold on to each other. Yep in a way and she knows and I know and it's it's good you know it's yeah. sad but it's good to have each other well when you have someone that you know truly understands it's just mm -hmm. a real blessing I mean not that you either one of you want the other one to be going through it but since you both have to it's so much nicer to go through it together yeah mm -hmm. it is it is so what it is it nice no but yes you know I mean we have a bond and we've had a we, I've known this woman, we had, you know, congenital heart defect support groups from the time her little boy was little and from the time Becca was little. And so we've known each other a long, long time and don't live in the same town, but it doesn't really matter. So no, it doesn't really matter, does it? No, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter because your hearts connect, you know, you, you do and you get it. And, and so many people don't. And that's, that's okay. I mean, some of my very closest friends are mm -hmm. do not live even at all close to me now. And it's amazing how I do think of them as my closest friends, yeah. you know, but I absolutely 100% do. Yeah. So they get it, you know, they do. And that's, it's good. And it's sad, but at least we have each other, you know, in that sense. So but I don't expect people who haven't been through this horrible <laughs> thing to understand. I don't. So my expectations no. are not high. If somebody says something or something, I maybe you educate, but you don't hate or you don't put them down because they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't want them to know. That's the thing. I don't want them to ever know. And I know they can learn. You know, right. I know they can, but they're not going to learn if I'm not going to be nice. And I can be nice about it. I, I mean, I really can. Yeah. So, and it's really good when they're open about it, mm -hmm. um, when they're open, open about being educated, because sometimes people are and sometimes people aren't. Mm -hmm. And I do like it when people reach out and say something and say, I don't, I don't know if that was quite the right thing to say. And then when they do that, then it makes me know that this is a teachable moment, right? And so then I can come back and say, you know, maybe that wasn't quite right. I do appreciate that you reached out. And next time, you know, maybe you could try this. And that helps them not only with me, my next time, but really with them just interacting with the world. Right. And sometimes you don't need to have say anything. And I think that's what makes people stand off. Sometimes you can just be, yeah. you know, I'm here to love you. Right. And that's, that's good. And, but, and that's good, you know, it is. And, and that is the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because I've been thinking so much about Valeriana through this whole 
conversation, obviously, but you know, his mother died now a year ago, last November, and and he wasn't there. He hadn't seen her, which was really hard. And he just found out that she died. And he, you know, was 20, was 22 at the time. And he just kind of wanted to close off and be how young men are in some ways. And he didn't want to talk to me or whatever. And he was just crying and screaming and whatever. And I went down and I, I think he would have turned me away. But I, instead of talking to him at all, I just said, can I sit here with you? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said, okay. And I just sat and I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon then he did open up and start talking to me about his mom. But I know if had I started talking to him, certainly like trying to make him feel better or anything like that, he would have shut me down. Mm-hmm. But the best thing was just to sit there and not to say anything at all. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, you feel the love and the comfort. Yeah. 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 Don't ask anything of him. You're just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just there. You're just you there. Yeah. Recently, when you were, we were emailing back and forth quite a bit. Yeah, I believe you said something about grief being your, your friend now or something. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I will talk because I was, maybe we all are sick and tired of grief. I was yeah. so, oh, I can't live like this, almost screaming like, I can't do this anymore. And of course, I was going to do it forever. And so I finally decided, what if, if grief is love and people say it is, some people say it is, then maybe grief misses Becca too. Yeah. And so I thought, why can't we be friends in this grief? So, and I know I'm always going to have grief. Truthfully, I'm sad all the time, but I can yeah. function fine. Nobody knows that. But maybe we can be friends. Maybe I can hold on to grief. I can love grief and grief can love me back. Yeah. And so at least I'm never, I'm never, I'm, grief is always there, except it's louder and quiet, you know, and softer sometimes, I think. But if we can hold each other when we're particularly having a, a when I'm particularly having a bad day, then then I'm being hugged by this love that yeah. grief really is love. Now, I've heard it can also be anger, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't like to think of it that way. But, but I think of it as love because it is. I would if I didn't love her so much I wouldn't feel so awful yeah grief I'm I'm good with I'm not good yeah I'm kind of good with grief I mean I think we're friends yeah I think I think that's okay you know I don't hate grief anymore because am I hating love if I hate grief I don't know you know maybe so I don't have all the answers but it's made me feel a little more at peace and when grief comes you know, and puts its arms around me, I kind of accept it and say, okay. And then it can kind of let go and, and I can be okay. And then, you know, at some point it's back again. So I don't know. It's worked for me. I really like that image because in sometimes you think of grief as like an enemy and you're constantly at war with, Mm -hmm. but that's, that, isn't the way to think about it. And you're right. I mean, my own grief therapist has said to me, grief is love with nowhere to go. It's Mm -hmm. that you just have such deep love. Mm -hmm. And that person isn't there anymore to actually give the hug to. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's grief is that painful longing to continue to love without Mm -hmm. having that person right there in front of you anymore. Yeah. That I feel for Becca. I mean, it's really love that I feel for Becca. Right. If we hold each other, maybe it's going to be better, you know? And maybe it's sort of like you're being held by Becca. Yeah. And Becca and you're holding Becca, right? When you think about it that way, when you think about your grief as this just amazing love for Becca and you let that love and that grief envelop you in a hug. Yeah. It's, there's some peace in that or some warmth in that somehow, not hate because boy, that doesn't help anything. No, Mm -hmm. no, it sure doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because you do have all of these kind of emotions and they do go all over the place and, you know, you can have guilt and you can have anger and you can have all of these things and you just, I mean, letting them come and wash over you and letting go is, is the best thing you can do for yourself. You know, it's interesting in my case, we made sure we traveled the country looking for help for her. So I don't have any regret, which is good. That's good. And then I never had anger, which I find is interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know why not, but I, have, I haven't had anger. So I don't. And I don't know what, because who am I angry at? Yeah. I mean, I'm not quite sure who to be angry. I'm not, who am I angry at? I'm just grateful she was here. You know, I don't blame God. I don't, because I don't believe God did this. I don't in any way. I'm not there at all. I just feel like I was so lucky that she was part of my heart and my soul will always be. And for so much longer than you ever imagined. Ever imagined. But, you know, and it still wasn't long enough. I'll tell you that sure, for sure. Of course but not. I think it's different if you have something that, like in your case, I mean, there's somebody you can be angry at. There really is. Yeah. You know, there's so many people I know, their doctors have made mistakes, a lot of horrible things, but I don't have the anger because it, the circumstances just were different. Well, and you know what I think too, I think back more towards the beginning of this conversation we had when you were in that Pete's ICU room with the little Korean child that you had with the heart disease. And you had that question of why, 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 and then you gave that up. Mm -hmm. You gave up the why at that point in time. And maybe you all those years ago, giving up asking the question why helped you to not have the anger because I think they often go together. It's the why me, why us, why Mm -hmm. my child? And then when you don't have an answer to that, then the anger comes because there is no answer. And so you get angry. But the fact that you didn't ever, I mean, by the time Becca had all of her struggles, you weren't Mm -hmm. asking the question why anymore. And the fact that you didn't have that question to answer meant that the lack of an answer didn't make you angry. That's true. It's true. It really has given me so much peace in the long run through a lot of things because they're, I'm okay with not knowing why. And there's a lot of things, there's never any answer to why. So right. it's good. You know, I feel, I feel it's really good. Yeah. 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 You know, the one thing I want to say maybe a little bit is, and I, one of the things I lost, oh, I lost a million things when I lost Becca, but I lost my purpose. Yeah. My purpose. We have all the other kids and all that stuff, but it was different. I was keeping 
her alive. Right. <laughs> so I lost my purpose. And we also lost the family, doctor family it's at Lucille Packard. You know, the the doctors here, I know one, actually one of her adult congenital doctor uh, here named her little girl after Becca, Rebecca after she had her in 2018 in December. We stayed friends with her, but we lost these people that were so important also. Yeah. Secondary losses. And so, and my purpose has been huge yeah. to what is my purpose now? I don't know. And it's, I don't think it'll ever be as what it was before. And I can't go back. No. So I'm still struggling with that. I mean, you were Becca's mom. I mean, more than you were Chris in some ways. You were Becca's in mom. Way, I think that's true. And so who who am I now? Yeah. One of the things I've started doing just recently, we have a some place called New Song. And New Song is a place for bereaved children. And after Becca died, we were raising our grandson who lived with Becca too. So Be- uh, Tyler and I went to New Song. And it's a place that children, grieving children, are divided into groups of age-wise and they have they play and they help each other and they share things. It's not therapy. And then the parents need to stay on premises. And so they have groups for parents or you could read a book if you want to. Uh-huh. And so there is also it's like peer to peer support. You do have a facility, right. but it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. It's non-denominational. You can talk about your religion if you want to and your beliefs in your groups. But every or no denomination is welcome. You don't have to have anything. It's run by a hospice of the Valley who, who supplies it or supports it. So I went there and then I've just recently started, barely started, you know, I took the training and shadowed people, but being a facilitator for uh, one of the adult groups. So, but it's still, it's not my, you know, maybe it's my purpose. Maybe it's not but it's not going to be the same. And that's no, it's not the same. But I'm glad that you're kind of searching for that because yeah. it it does help when you find it a little bit because it, yeah. it took me a while, but did feel like I found my purpose now and what to do with my grief because you need to be able to do something with it. And it can be big, it can be little, it can be anything in between. I've said that a million times on the podcast, but if you can have a little bit of purpose with your grief, right. it can help you. It helps me stay closer to Andy. It will help you stay closer to Becca. Mm-hmm. It, it it's just helps your own heart, your mama's heart, I think so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. so do you have any other parting words that you would like to share with people before we close? I I guess I'd just like to say, give yourself grace, you know, love yourself. You're okay. You know, really are okay. I think don't be hard on yourself because I think too many people are. Yeah. So love yourself. Give yourself grace. Probably about it. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I love learning about your girls. Thank you. for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization 
and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thriving Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.